Again, I just want to thank you for all of your presence here uh, today and uh, sharing in this time and um, good things. I just so so enjoyed the the, the music that we've shared to, uh, together today, and I hope that we can have a good um, study together, re reflection on Scripture. So many people that we are concerned about uh, within our own congregation, as well as uh, tragedies that are striking our uh, our world, our own country, and, and all of that. So please keep uh, your prayers very active. We are especially encouraged in, in the women's retreat that's, that's coming up. And they, uh, you know, it's something that you kind of get used to here. We, we start off the, with the planning of the women's retreat, and everybody thinks, oh, is there going to be anybody that will come? Is there going to be anybody? And we even start the registration. And at first, it's slow and so forth. And then, poof. And actually, there, the, we may have another 30 that register within the next day, you know, because, uh, <laughs> because, uh, 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 We've given that that leeway to uh, to have have that. If you do not have the the notes for the the message today uh, that uh, that have the the scripture for Genesis one one through two three that you heard Shakar read so so beautifully for us today, and a few other scriptures, and then uh, the text the notes that I'm going to be following. Raise your hand. Someone from the the back will will I hope look look you out and and uh, bring those back. Thank you for. Someone jumping in there to uh, to to do that. I, I really appreciate it. Um, we started last week formally in a new uh, series in, called "Meeting God in Everyday Life," and that everyday life is important here. But it, also the the meeting God part is important. Both parts are really important in thinking uh, about all of of that and. Oh, but, oh, before I go any further, I forgot. I wanted to say Happy New Year. Happy Lunar New Year uh, to, to all of you, and uh, especially all who have any roots uh, in the whole uh, Asian uh, world of Asia where this is the New Year's Day uh, here. So we want to, to, um, for, to celebrate that, and uh, especially if you have affinities for rabbits. I think this is the, your... Your really good time uh, today for for going into that and and seeking prosperity in this uh, in this new year. The, the lunar new year is always associated with great thoughts for for prosperity in new times. Uh, that seeking being able to meet God in everyday life, the the component of God and the component of everyday life and. And this may, be, may seem, in this sermon, a, a, a little bit of a strange way to get, especially into the everyday life part, to, to focus on Genesis 1 and the creation story in Genesis 1 and some other passages that, that refer to that and that understanding. But it, it, on a deeper level, it is basic to, to what we're talking about because it, it takes us into the way to think about all of these things uh, in in our um, in our understanding of our life with God and His His impact in our lives, the Bible is this narrative of God and a narrative of us human beings, both at the very same time. And as one follows through the Bible, starting with Genesis one, and uh, it focuses at, or climaxes, we might say, with the creation of the human being and the image of God, as you heard in the reading. 
It shows our grandeur. But then, of course, as you well know, as we go on into the narrative, it also shows our brokenness and our sinfulness and our rebellion and our alienation and exile and all of that. It shows God's work to free us, free us from just all kinds of things, free us from self-destruction, really, and to bring us to share God's life. Because we, as the vision is that we are creatures made in the image of God, but at the same time we see through these little eyes into a world that is very limited. All of you are part of my world because I see through my eyes and you become, and I guess I'm part of your world, but it's a limited view of, of the world and it leads me as a human being, all of us as human beings, to, to mistake what's really there in the reality of the world. And so this sinfulness that comes in that begins to creep in especially in the second chapter of Genesis and then in the in the third chapter and the fourth chapter uh, and then explodes uh, is is something that that God intervenes in through the whole course of the Bible to free us from that self-destruction and to bring us to share his own uh, his own life but within that Story that great story that leads obviously to to, uh, to Jesus as the Messiah as the anointed King of Israel, and uh, as our Savior and Lord, and to the giving of the Holy Spirit and all of that to the comprehension and understanding of God as a, as a whole. Um, there is within all of it this beginning focus on God as Creator. God is Creator of the world. God is Creator of everything. Now, as all of us know, I think that is a highly disputed idea today. Uh, and um, it, it's, it's something that one encounters, uh, you know, all over the place in various forms. People have all kinds of modulated views of it, but there is ba developing a kind of orthodoxy in, in uh, many circles that has taken on a kind of philosophical quality uh, to it uh, that, that stands over against the idea that there can be any such thing as a, as a creator, a physicalist kind of orthodoxy or a materialist orthodoxy that asserts that the world that we live in is a world, um, well, there's a lot of ways that one can say it, without, without mind, without direction, without in, intelligence within it, that it unfolds by, by chance, and it has no meaning, no direction. It's often given in the form of kind of getting rid of the whole of old Aristotelian ideas. This is in philosophical circles, Aristotelian ideas that there is a final cause, something that things are moving toward, that there's a purpose in in the world. To get rid of all of those things and to look just. It's part of the idea of, of, uh, of the methodology of science in a very good way, that one just looks at what one can determine on the basis of the physical realities that are in front of you. And that's been powerful and profound in science. But it becomes something that is a metaphysical orthodoxy that excludes the possibility that, of there being a, a creator. And one looks at the world and sees something that has come about by chance, depending on what scale you're looking at, maybe as something that happens in a multiverse, or maybe it's two, if you get into string theory, two brains interacting with each other and causing what we can know as our Big Bang and all of those things. 
There is the idea, though, one way or the other, that we are totally chance beings. Our world is totally a chance world. But here in the scriptures in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, which we have in front of us today, by the way, the what you heard read and what you have on the, your sheet is an abridgment of Genesis 1 to, so as to get it a little bit down, but to be able to see the, the whole scope of it. And you can obviously look at, at a translation of, of Genesis 1 from a regular Bible and, and see where phrases have been left out and so forth. Here we, in the beginning of Genesis, we have two narratives of creation, two colorful narratives. And they affirm emphatically, but in different ways, this creative nature of God. And in that process of affirming that there is God there in creation and bringing about this world and involved in it and detailed in different sorts of ways, they give affirmation of the the why, the directionality, the why that's behind all the particulars of existing things. And so maybe strangely, I, I, uh, I, I want to focus just a little bit on that kind of why that's there, maybe a, in a sort of semi, not, not very, but semi-philosophical way. As, as one comes into this narrative in, in Genesis 1, it starts off with that famous statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was over the face of the abyss. Now if one takes that as sort of a, a preamble, that first sentence is kind of a preamble to the rest, and that, that really the rest of chapter, verse 2 and following are saying the same thing as verse 1, you'll find it sometimes translated as when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. It's a way of getting a translation that does not assert that God made the world, that it came into existence with God, but rather that it existed and God gave it shape and form and order and so forth. And, you know, depending on how one looks at it, it's, you can see the argument certainly for that. But as it just simply stands, there is a power that has resonated down through and certainly has been the basis for, for the understanding of the creation all the way through the history of both Judaism and Christianity, that it asserts God as creator. In the beginning, God created. And that that stands there as a why, answering the question why. Why is there something rather than nothing. Why does something exist? And when we're talking about nothing here, we're not talking about sort of the interstellar vacuum of space that where there is nothing, but at the same time, particles can, subatomic particles can come into existence and go out of existence in microseconds and, and all of those kinds of things. We're talking about a radical nothing. Nothing, 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 absolute nothing. If there is nothing, how does the something that you are and that we are ever get 
started. Because everything that we look at all around us, whatever the character of it is, whether we see it in just with our ordinary eyes or whether we do it, see it with the most, the, the most cutting edge um, sensors that, that uh, the scientific world and technological world can give us, Everywhere we look at anything, everything that we see is, well, the te more technical word is contingent. It's dependent on something before it that gives it a cause, that gives it existence and all of that. But as has been argued many, many times, if you go back, you get that, as they say, an infinite regress back. Each, each thing has something that caused it. Each thing has something that caused it. And nowadays it's it's popular to say, well, well, if you get back and you say God caused it, well, then where did God come from? And that is exactly missing the point of what, of the assertion of Genesis 1-1, that there is an end to this sequence of cause, 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 cause going back. When one comes to something, someone who is existence itself, being itself, the source of all things that are dependent, and that is everything that we see, you, me, everything, this solid pulpit, which is mostly empty space, just the electromagnetic interaction of the, of the molecules are holding it together and keeping my hand from going through it. Everything that we see is dependent, is it is contingent, but there is behind all of it something that is not contingent, someone who is not contingent, and that someone, something is God. God is being itself. God is uncreated, no beginning. God does not come into existence. He gives existence. He gives existence. He gives existence. This bottle exists right at this moment because of God. God sustains the existence of everything that is, so that everything, all of us, in every aspect of our being, are dependent on God. That's the, a deep fundamental idea here that is there, that there is always behind all the stuff, there is this core being, core being, being itself, existence itself in God that gives not only life but the very existence of a plastic bottle gives it its existence. And so that's, that's part of the challenge of thinking about this, especially in a modern world where one has this, this understanding of how is it that, that we have the things that we have. And then also there is this... Um, Question that I didn't know exactly how to how to put here, but uh, the way I chose to, to put it is, why are humans so different? There's a lot of big questions along the way about life and all of that that are answered here. But especially you. How is it that you, little animals that you are, are sitting here listening to a sermon? What a foolish choice. You ought to be out catching your prey. You ought to be out doing something that uh, would sustain your life and pass your genes on down to the next generation. Why are you reflecting on God 
Why are you thinking about these things? Why are human beings so different? Why are some of you artists and musicians and technologists and teachers? Why are you people who study the ways in which the body works so that you can minister and help others and so on and so on and so on? Why are human beings so different with personal consciousness? If we live in a world that is utterly chance and has no direction, how is it that we all, every single one of us, has a mind that every single thought of our minds is directed towards something? It may not be very important. It may be, you know, the silliest thing in the world, but it's directed toward something. It has purpose and direction. Human beings have that first-person consciousness that nobody else has access to. Over there sits my wife, as I often say. She doesn't want me to name her name, but it's Sonia. And um, we know each other pretty well, pretty well. But I have no access to actually her consciousness, her mind, what she thinks about this, unless she gives it to me in some way or other. And sometimes I distrust that, too. So. Um, all of us are that way. There are so many stories going on right now in the minds of all of us here, right, as we think about things, each one of us with our own particular consciousness, our own story, as we hear. Why are human beings this way, which is so out of kilter with the rest of the world, if it is utterly by chance? That personal consciousness is expansive. And through it, we know every bit of scientific knowledge that we have. We know everything that we do. We, we know all of the, the sensibilities that we have of music and art and the love of our children and grandchildren and all of it. We do everything we do out of that. How is it? that we are this way. And the answer, of course, as you know from that reading in, in, in Genesis 1, is when it comes to the human being, there is the understanding of the image of God, the image of that being, of that one who gives existence, is somehow, somehow, some, not defined clearly, but somehow there in us. And out of that flows a responsibility a sense of ruling is the term that's used in the story. Uh, it, within this complex world, within this abundant world, but within this world that's also vulnerable and that we can mess up royally like we often mess up our own lives. So that, that those fundamental questions about who I am, who we are, what the world is about, how do I live my life, are dealt with straight on in, the, uh, in Genesis 1, within this astonishing story that's very stylized and so forth, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and goes in there multiple patterns that one can, uh, can find within, within all of it. But there's also much more in Genesis 1. We're not going to go through the details of Genesis 1 this, this morning. You read it and we will, we will uh, you know, come back again and again and again to it because it's such a basic text. One is that the world in its, the creation in its essence, as one sees it in Genesis 1, 
is, of course, fundamentally good, but it's also without conflict. Notice that. We live in such a conflictual world. God has no opponents in this, compared to so much mythology of the ancient world where there's a big battle of one god against other gods and they, you know, they'll tear apart the defeated ones and create the world out of them or that sort of thing. God simply is there and God speaks and it was so, as the repeated phrase is, and it was good. So God is without conflict and if you read Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2 verse 3, you will not have any hint that there is anything evil in this entire world that God makes. It is very good, as God's verdict on it at the, uh, <clears throat> at the end of the sixth day is. Think that another aspect of this, though, also, especially in the ancient world, is that things are things. No, one of the most colorful things are things that, you know, you have to notice to look at is verse 14. God said, let there be lamps in the vault of the heavens. First of all, the vault, that there is this solidity, this firmament, as the King James Version makes it, the word that was made up to translate this very word. That there is a solidity of the heavens, a vault of the heavens. And then God puts lamps in the vault. Now, what are the lamps? Well, obviously we know that what he's talking about, what the narrative's talking about, they're talking about the sun and the moon, one for the day and one for the night. But notice that the words sun and moon don't occur here. Rather, it's, it's keeping them on a level lower than that because so much of the world worshipped the sun, worshipped the moon in all sorts of various ways. And so these were gods for so many people. But here, as we come into this, there is one God who speaks everything into existence. There are beings that have vitality, there are, that are living beings, but there are also things that are just things. And so a way of saying that, that the sun is not a God, the moon's not a God, is that they are lamps. And God hangs the lamp up here in the vault of the heaven as the, the story unfolds here. There are these things. But there is also the idea that unfolds in just in the structure of it, the, the stylized structure of the whole narrative, that this, there is order, that God seeks order, and that that order is there to be seen as one look, uh, looks at it, that the world is discoverable, that there is rationality in the world. And as one goes through it, you see God, God's word, God's spirit pervading all of it. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters at the beginning there as God begins the process of creating order. And God speaks his word again and again and again in all of these things. Indeed, as you see it work out, as God speaks, even the world itself participates in creation. So that God, God will say to, uh, let's see, where, what, what verse is it? Um, oh, a good example, this is verse 24. God said, let the earth produce living beings according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, earth's animals, each according to its kind. The earth is drawn in to participate in this process as God 
creates and then uses and, in, and engages with the creation in order to do it. And all of it is given not only just an order that one can see in things, but an order in time. Day one, evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day, and so forth, leading up to the seventh day, where God, instead of ensconcing being to wor at work on time, you know, like, uh, like Scrooge would do with, with uh, his, his, his Clark, he ensconces the idea of rest. God rests. God doesn't need to rest. What do you mean? God is infinite in power. He doesn't need to rest. He's not like me. But he rests. And he ensconces that in the creation itself and gives an order that allows human life to prosper and develop in all of that. And so as one looks at it, there's just so, so many things to, to see here. Not, not in the sense of seeing that they are all, everything is literally factual in the, in the world. There's not a dome over the heaven, even though when you walk out, especially at night, you can just see the dome. And I can remember as a, as a child looking up at the blue sky and clouds and wondering how far that up was up before you ran into that up there and so forth. I was pretty dumb in my youth. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was just looking at things with ordinary eyes. Didn't have any, any other story. And, um, and it, looked, it looks that way. And that's the way this is written. Just an ordinary person walking out and looking at the world. This is what they say. But it's in seeing all that that one realizes that everything that we touch, this, as I've mentioned already, my famous bottle of water now, and my pulpit and the carpet and the pews and the cars outside and the plants and butterflies and the, and the birds and everything, everything, everything is a part of this creation. So that in both Genesis 1 and also in Genesis 2 in the new, the, the second creation narrative that we have there, we see human life within the wonderfully complex world that flows out of God's being, out of God's intention, out of who God is. And in it, there is no division between religious and secular. Every element of life, every element of creation, all is part, all is enfolded within who God is and what God is doing. These two chapters of creation, Genesis 1, the, the seven days of creation, Genesis 2, starting with the creation of the human being and then uh, climaxing with the creation of the, of the woman or the division of the human being into man and woman, uh, both of them, even though they're very different in their character, they still have that fundamental idea of the importance of human life in that flowing out of God's character, God's being, God's intention, and without any division in, in life. Every element of our everyday life is there. And these two chapters begin that long 
parable that is Genesis chapter 1 through 11, starting uh, then especially in Genesis chapter 3 with the, the story of the, the talking snake, the, the, the serpent that comes and talks to, to the woman and all that unfolds from that and going on to the story of Cain and Abel and on the flood and on and on, Tower of Babel, right on down until we get to, to, uh, to Abraham. They tell the story of how human life becomes so challenging, so broken, so mixed, both good and evil, hopeful in its goodness, hopeful in its connection to God, but also experiencing over and over again the troubles of, uh, that human beings bring. And, they, and in this, these challenges of human loneliness are dealt with and relationships. This is just in the second chapter. And the danger of eating the fruit of the knowledge of tree, uh, good and evil. And, uh, and the, uh, even of the coming of death that is, that is uh, there. And so these old stories that had been told again and again and again and again and again in Israel are finally written down in the time of, of, the, of the Babylonian exile. And I've included on your sheet um, a passage from, from Isaiah, the, of the exile, from Isaiah chapter 40. And one sees how the prophets, a prophet like Isaiah of the exile, how he thinks about this and, and how he thinks about the creation in relationship to the everyday life of the people of God in exile. He calls the people to think of creation's meaning. And God's creation ranges from stars to the grieving and hopeless people. Look at that passage. It's there on the, at the bottom of the front side of your sheet and goes on to the second, second page. To whom will you compare me? Whom do I resemble, says the holy God? Lift your eyes to the heights and look. Who created all these? He leads out the starry army as if calling each one by name. Because of his absolute power and awesome strength, not one of them is missing. You, Jacob. You, Israel. Why do you say the Lord doesn't know what's happening to me? That's sort of the first step that's been powerful at so many stages in human history, that God is too distant to care about me. If I believe that God created all this, then God can't possibly have time for me. <clears throat> Why do you say the Lord doesn't know what's happening to me? My God doesn't care about my cause. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the eternal God, creator of the whole world. He never gets weary or worn down. So Sabbath is not just a matter of getting tired. It's a matter of affirming rest. His understanding is beyond all our comprehension. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Now even young people get tired and worn out, and youths can collapse in exhaustion. But those of all of these categories who put their hope in the Lord will gain new strength. They'll soar aloft on eagles' wings. They'll run and never weary. They'll keep on walking and never faint. When we look at 
every experience within this great reality of what God has done, from the stars to the person sitting there in grief and brokenness and hopelessness in the time of exile, when we look at it, at it all within that, God's power and hope pierce through even human despair. And Isaiah wants Israel to see themselves renewed within God's strength. The other passage that I've included there on your, on, your, um, on your sheet is from Acts, the 17th chapter, long after Isaiah. This is Paul before the Areopagus, as it's called, this court uh, in, in Athens, and he's got a group of philosophers, of Stoics and Epicureans who want to listen to him or at least question him and so forth, and he speaks to them. And again, like Isaiah, comes to the story of creation as he wants to 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 challenge them. He starts, as you, this is the, the passage that's known as the Sermon about the Unknown God. He starts with their defensive pagan piety toward the gods where they are afraid they might have left somebody out and so they have a, a, an altar to an unknown god. They have this piety toward gods, but they are gods within the world, not god of existence beyond the world. They are the gods of this and that and the other within the world. And he challenges them to envision the existence-giving God who is beyond all religion and all piety. And just notice how much he emphasizes that. It's not a matter of common religion and not a matter of common piety. God is inescapable because he is in every breath that we take. Listen to it. The God who made the cosmos and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples or church buildings made with hands, nor is he being helped by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives life and breath and everything else to everyone. Amen. And from one, he made every nation of humans to dwell in every place on the earth, having marked out ordered seasons and the limits of their dwelling, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might feel after him and find him. Though actually he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He is inescapable because he is in every breath we take. He, we feel after him as though he were somewhere out there outside of us. But it, we are inside him. In him we live and move and have our being. Even as we live and want to push God away, we push at God the God within whom we, we exist. We are caught in that self-deception that keeps us from seeing the way reality actually is. So that when we see reality, when we see the reality of God, it, it elevates our vision of ourselves. We're, we're, we think that we're better than God and we can hold the gods off, so to speak, but it's only those little gods that we make in our in our own little world. We can never hold off 
the God who is keeping me in existence in an absolutely fundamental way at every moment. And to know that God's heart, that even though I might just be a little speck of matter on a small planet around a very ordinary sun on the, on the arm of one spiral galaxy out of jillions, I am in God. You are in God, living, moving, being in God. And our vision of ourselves includes that as God's offspring. So the narratives of God as creator, that's where they're going. They never were in, intended as statements of scientific analysis. The creation itself that God has given to us fulfills that role. God made it discoverable. God made it analyzable. God made it usable. Just in the last few weeks, we've had the great, what seems to be, I don't know exactly how to evaluate it, but the breakthrough of fusion energy. What a transformation that would be if we could figure out how to, to use fusion energy instead of all of the, the, um, the fossil fuels that we live our lives on now. Always there to be looked at, to be discovered, to be examined. But all of them know that with that all that physical existence is within the more fundamental reality that God is. God is that reality. The deep being of God in God's love as we come to know him in his relationships, in his power and in his purpose encounters us because we are in the image of God, in our own consciousness and conscience, our love, our mind, our creativity, our freedom, our will, and all that makes you up as a complex human being. All of it, the whole of God as creator, is a call to life in God. That's where you are. But we are often so deceived that we think that we're somewhere out there and God's off away. In him we live and move and have our being. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, we do praise your name. I recognize, Father, that even as I speak about these things, I'm speaking about mysteries that I do not have the capacity to know even in their surface levels, much less the, the depth of who you are. But I thank you for letting us know through your self-revelation that this existence, that this being that you are is a being of love and Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That it is a being that gives life and shares life and that we are called to see ourselves within the beauty and complexity and depth and wonder that you are help us heavenly father that we may live into your existence as creator and be 
the people you created us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand together for just a couple of verses as we conclude as our benediction? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was over the face of the abyss. But God's Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Amen. Amen. Greet one another and go forth to serve. <laughs>